Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Dave Butler and Rick Furman of Argosy Real Estate Partners, a fund manager with $1.3 billion currently under management. It has invested $5.5 billion in gross real estate investments since inception and operates out of three offices in Philadelphia, Denver, and San Francisco. Argosy has proven that a unique investment approach can lead to a sustainable competitive advantage over the long run. As one of the few institutional diversified real estate fund managers focused on the underserved lower middle market, the firm has created value for institutional investors, family offices, and high net worth individuals over many years. Dave and Rick speak to their strategy the trends they are seeing in the market, and also share with us the tax advantages of investing in opportunity zones. We hope you enjoy the show. So Dave and Rick, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I know we've been planning this for for some time now. Really excited to chat. You know, we're going to cover both, you know, what you're doing specifically with an Argosy uh, real estate but also chat a little bit about the broader topic of the real estate market as well as opportunity zones in particular. But to kick off, perhaps, Dave, you could tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks, RJ. Uh, I've actually been on the real estate principal side of the business now for about 20 years. Uh, I came from an institutional investment background, uh, worked for a few large firms, including JP Morgan, and uh, prior to to moving to the investment side, I was in, in the investment banking business, uh, was focused mostly on raising capital and advising real estate companies. And um, while I was at JP Morgan, I saw a large number of very attractive, smaller investment opportunities that, that were very compelling nonetheless, but were just too small for, for firms like them to, to efficiently deploy capital into. Um, so I was very interested in trying to build a fund business around these these smaller to mid-sized property that I saw. And um, just because I felt that there was a lot more inefficiency there. And my partner, Andy Stewart, and I found a home at Argosy just about 10 years ago. Uh, they were very established on the fund management side of the business, on the corporate private equity side of things, but not so much on real estate. And they were looking to build it out. And, and, and we've been there now, as I said, over 10 years, and it's been a very good fit. It's been great to see how you've grown that real estate arm of Argosy over the years, and I've been, you know, keeping in touch, of course, with Rick and and hearing more and more about uh, what you're doing. So it's been it's been really great to see, you know, how you've built that the and grown the the platform. You know, it, you you've kind of produced a consistent track record, you know, over time. Can you share with us a little bit about more about the platform? And in particular, the real estate group. Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it's been about ten years now. We started with a, with a very small AUM on the real estate side, and we've decided to to purposely focus on on keeping our funds smaller, uh, generally below four hundred million in size, and and just to expand into various strategies. We we started with an opportunistic strategy only. We've since added a core plus uh, strategy and the opportunity zone strategy, which which Rick will talk about here a bit more in detail later. But by staying small, we're staying in the 
lower middle market, which we like. And there's been a very pronounced trend towards larger funds in the market. The average closed fund last year in real estate was was nearly a billion dollars. And there's there's a very small number of firms that are that are increasingly raising a bigger chunk of the capital. Um, so it's being generally concentrated into, into you know, fewer players and, and bigger funds. So we don't really mind that um, because we've still been able to raise capital while, while the big guys are, are all competing against each other for, for a smaller number of deals. Um, but our model is that we are a diversified allocator fund. Um, so we invest in various asset classes, including multifamily and office uh, retail, lodging and residential land. We focus on the top 35 markets in the U.S. Any one time, we're focused on about 10 to 15 of those. We have been spending a lot of time on these emerging secondary markets and suburban primary markets, even uh, pre-COVID, which post-COVID, there's a big push for these lifestyle and affordability-driven markets, um, which are secondary technology markets. And we've we've been playing in those markets for, for a long period of time. So we we have the the contacts and the and the expertise to play well in those markets, but but our model, as I mentioned, we're an allocator, so we predominantly invest in joint ventures with with operating partners and development partners who are based in those markets. They run the projects day to day, but but we have the ultimate uh, decision uh, um, control as the as the 51 to say 90 percent owner of the property. And you you touched on this a little bit, but you know what's on everyone's mind now is how the pandemic is go- going to impact real estate going forward. You know, is this something we could we could touch on uh, a little bit? Do you have some kind of insights into how kind of you foresee the market trending? Yeah, you know, post pandemic, it's it really depends on the asset class. Um, so. We have historically spent a lot of time on the lodging asset class, which has been hit the hardest by far out of all of them. And I'd say retail is probably the second most hit, followed by by office. So as long as you have capital and and are patient and and can find those those opportunities, we think over the next year or two, there's, there's going to be some very interesting opportunities uh, coming out of COVID. But we've, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the the rotation out of the larger top cities, very, very urban environments, and the move to more affordability driven and lifestyle and lower tax rate states. You're seeing kind of the move of a lot of people from from New York into into Florida and from California into into nearby lower tax rate states. You think that's a trend that that started pre-COVID and and is just going to continue uh, going forward here? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Even just uh, anecdotally, you know, on the and this is you know completely separate, but on the residential side, we're seeing property values surprisingly go up. Even where, around where where I live in in uh, in Princeton, where it, it seemed almost over a decade or even two decades, real estate prices you know, residential real estate values had stayed flat and, and all of a sudden we're starting to see movement. So um, it, it's really, and, and that's because of the move out of urban, you know, the folks moving out of urban areas towards the the suburbs. So maybe, you know, switching gears a little bit, you know, excited to learn more about opportunity zones. It's something that 
you know, I know Rick and I have chatted about in the past and, you know, our audience will be keen to, to learn about this topic as well, because it is, a you know, there are kind of dual or, or maybe even, you know, multiple advantages in investing in, in opportunity zones. So we'd love to, to switch gears here and, and talk a little bit more about opportunity zones and, and why folks, you know, maybe in particular family offices, you know, should be keen on learning about this strategy. Yeah, sure, RJ. Maybe um, many folks may already be familiar with Opportunity Zones, but maybe I'll just start with a very high-level overview of what it is and um, go from there. But, you know, the Qualified Opportunity Zones are really created as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which was really a bipartisan effort to spur investment and growth in low-income areas. There's roughly 8,700 zones throughout the country. Each one was uh, selected by the governor of each state that met certain low-income requirements. And at a very high level, uh, there's basically three federal tax benefits that you get when you invest in a uh, qualified opportunity zone. The first one is a deferral. So let's just say, RJ, you sold your Apple stock. Hopefully, you own a bunch of Apple stock right now. You sell it today. You've got a big capital gain. Typically, you would have to pay the tax liability on that gain on your 2020 tax return. If you roll the proceeds into a qualified opportunity zone business, then you would not have to pay the tax liability on that until 2026, end of 2026, actually fill the form out in 2027. So that's obviously a big benefit. You get to keep those dollars that you'd other wise pay to the IRS and invest and hopefully get a return on that investment. The second investment or benefit is effectively you would get a step up in basis on that investment that you sold and realize the capital gain of anywhere between 10 and 15% when the tax becomes due in 2026. So effectively, that means you pay 10 to 15% less than you otherwise would if you paid your gains today. And then the last benefit, which is the one that gets a lot of people pretty excited, is the new investment that you make in a qualified opportunity zone. So long as you hold it for 10 years, you would not pay any capital gains when you sold the investment. So you get a 100% step up. The entire capital gains is fully excluded. There's also additional state tax benefits for those states that are conforming. However, these federal tax benefits are pretty accretive after tax returns just on their own. We've underwritten a lot of projects over the past couple of years, probably a couple hundred, and we're generally finding that the, the federal tax benefits alone typically increase your after-tax IRR by about 600 basis points over a 10-year hold period, so pretty impressive returns. In terms of you know really what we're doing here at Argosy, we got involved a couple of years ago. Actually, some of our existing investors requested that we start spending time on the strategy. They were dealing with large capital gains. They didn't want to pay those taxes immediately. And they reached out to us, you know, to be QOZ eligible, projects need to be heavy repositions or ground up developments, which has really been our core strategy for the past decade. So we were already doing this, just not necessarily in opportunity zones. We spent, you know, the next, what do you say, Dave, the next 12 to 18 months getting smart on the program. We wanted to ensure that we were comfortable with the regulations and the various tax benefits. Uh, spent a lot of time with our tax advisors, more than I care to admit, uh, and ultimately got comfortable with it and, and decided to pursue it. So we've now made five investments to date. 
We actually just closed on our fifth investment a couple weeks ago, which is a heavy office reposition. It's a conversion from class B, B minus office building to a, a A plus building in downtown Sacramento. And then the other four projects are all ground up developments, two in Salt Lake City, one in Scottsdale, and, and one in Charleston, South Carolina. We're also, you know, continuing to look at additional deals in other high growth markets like Nashville, Maui, and Austin. And I'd say that really all the markets and projects we invest in really stand on their own, regardless of the opportunity zone status. So we really look at the tax benefits as being an additional benefit on top of something that we've already deemed to be a good investment otherwise. And then, you know, consistent with our investment strategies, as Dave mentioned, we see a lot of inefficiencies in the middle market space for opportunity zone deals. So a lot of the other funds that have raised capital uh, in a multi-asset vehicle have been mega funds of, say, $500 million or more, and they're really pursuing you know, a limited number of larger and generally more complex deals with, you know, what we think is greater execution risk. So again, we're, we're focused on the middle market, staying true to the original strategy of the firm and doing smaller deals. And, and do you think um, kind of the opportunity zone area is going to be one that you focus on for, for some time? I mean, what, what, what's the, how well, long does this kind of run for? Yeah, you know, over time, uh, the benefits start to wear off. The first two benefits I mentioned, the deferral and the reduction, those really start to become less valuable after a 2021 investment. So we haven't drawn any conclusions here, but I think it's safe to say we're probably not going to be pursuing the strategy past 2021 to the extent that the program doesn't evolve or change and extend certain deadlines. So it sounds like it's been an overall kind of successful program in particular for for those that are seeking ways to kind of just optimize their you know capital management and, and you know not only diversifying across asset classes but even with you know various tax efficient strategies yeah that's right i think uh, a lot of people have obviously had capital gains in the last year or so the markets have been strong and people are are trying to diversify out of out of gains they've earned in the stock market or with business sales. And so there has been quite a bit of interest in the program. You know, this is the overall kind of, it's interesting because, you know, we cover, you know, various industries uh, on this podcast and real estate is one we we revisit, you know, from time to time because, you know, it seems like almost everyone has some exposure uh, to the asset class. So, you know, maybe, you know, beyond the opportunity zones, what other areas, um, and I know we touched you know, on this with, with Dave a, a little bit earlier, but, you know, are there other kind of areas of real estate that, you know, you guys find interesting? Yeah. I mean, just to kind of echo some of what Dave has already said, you know, we've historically been investing out of a series of, you know, opportunistic funds and we continue uh, to execute on that strategy that continues to be our bread and butter. We're on our fourth fund and that should be fully deployed by the middle of next year. As Dave mentioned, we focus on uh, the middle market, and the segment continues to present inter- interesting opportunities, especially given COVID. And you know, we're arguably in the later stage of the current cycle, and so there are a couple themes that I'll highlight that we're focused on today. The first of which, and again, this is, you know, Dave touched on this a little bit earlier, but we are kind of focused on more suburban 
single-family built-to-rent market. This market has experienced significant growth. Tenants are looking for professionally managed and monetized single-family rental properties that are less dense than a typical apartment complex. It's a growing sector, and RJU are going to continue to hear and see more of this over the next decade. We're actually under construction on our first single-family rental project in North Las Vegas, and we'll be commencing our second project in Salt Lake City in the next 60 days or so. That'll be another ground-up development. And I'd say the other theme that we're focused on right now, uh, as Dave touched on, is distress in particular and hospitality. Obviously, hotels have been crushed from COVID, given that we have significant experience in this sector, in particular, premium branded select service and extended stay hotels. We've been spending a lot of time evaluating uh, distress opportunities. And you know, we're looking at providing rescue capital to owners who are distressed, um, but we're also looking at other strategies like converting you know, extended stay type hotels into uh, different assets like apartments or senior living actually something we were doing pre-COVID that even makes more sense today since you can now buy these uh, hotel assets at lower prices. So even though, you know, you could argue we're late stage in the real estate uh, market, we continue to find interesting opportunities. And uh, many in our uh, audience are um, actually more focused, you know, in the tech field, either as, you know, CEOs or entrepreneurs or, or investors. How have you, it'd be interesting to hear how you've overlapped with the tech community in the past or, or currently? Well, we've got a lot of tech investors in our funds. I mean, while we have a you know larger institutional investors, a good portion of our investor base um, still consists of high net worths, family offices, wealth advisors, many in the San Francisco Bay Area, many folks who have created wealth over the past decade through their involvement in seed or early stage ventures. And as you know, RJ, these individuals um, who've had their own startup businesses or early stage investors, they tend to be pretty savvy investors and are always looking to diversify their wealth into tech and uh, from tech into other assets like real estate. So perhaps some of your audience is already an investor in one of our funds, but uh, if not, they certainly have um, similar backgrounds to a lot of our individual investors. Got it. That's helpful. Well, we're we're just about uh, up on time here, but just wanted to to close out and, and uh, thank you guys for taking the time. You've been you know very generous spending it with us, and and I think our audience will find this conversation uh, very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, RJ. Thank you.